online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, Mathieu Roland Bielcar, president of Bielcar Salmon, on what it takes to run one of the greatest names in Champagne and what's in store with the launch of its latest premium cuvee, Nicolas Francois 2008. Representing the seventh generation at one of the last great champagne houses still to be under family control, the sense of responsibility must weigh heavily on Mathieu Roland Bilcar. Not that you'd know it, genial, relaxed and seemingly as comfortable in English as he is in his native French, his mission has been to focus the Bilcar Salmon brand on what it does best – making premium champagne, aimed primarily at the finest restaurant wine lists. Its Brut Reserve is highly regarded. The Brut Rosé is considered by many as the very finest example of pink champagne. And then there are its top cuvées, which undergo a longer ageing process than most such examples. Named in honour of one of the co-founders of the house, a union between Nicolas-Francois Bielcar and Elizabeth Samon back in 1818, Cuvée Nicolas-Francois 2008 is rooted in one of the great vintages and has enjoyed about 14 years ageing on its lees. Uh, to celebrate, a select lucky few uh, were invited to the Côte d'Azur to triple Michelin-starred restaurant Mirazur in Monton on the French border with Italy. Uh, this was named best restaurant in the world, by the way, in 2019, and it doesn't disappoint. Uh, it was a launch like no other. Later, I shall report back on a vertical tasting of that cuvee. But first, I caught up with uh, Mathieu Roland Bilcar, and I kicked off by asking him to introduce us to the house. Yes, so Bilcar Salmon is one of the very last few family-owned and run Champagne estate. We were founded in 1818 by my great-great-great-great-grandparents. I'm actually seventh generation. We founded the house in 1818. So beginning of the 19th century in a little village called maroy sur ai where our estate is still based, which is in the heart of the Premier Grand Cru. And it is really quite rare to have a champagne house that's still family owned with that kind of history, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, owned and run is now become quite a rare combination. It's really important for us to carry on the heritage and keep having a very long-term transgenerational vision, which makes a real difference when we come to managing a vineyard and managing a cellar. We need to think ahead 20, 30, 40 years, which is a little hard when you are just driven by more short-term objectives. Is it easier then to have the right kind of strategic priorities if you're a family business? I mean, I would say so because I am, we are a family business. I think it comes with, as ever, strength and weaknesses. So yes, we are small and independent, so we don't benefit from, I guess, some of the advantages of the large luxury groups or large beverage groups like, you know, core business economies of scale, big marketing, big advertising. We don't do any of that. 
However, if you want to uh, create exceptional wines, which is very much the ethos of Champagne Vilcasa and more, yes, it gives you the luxury of time. It gives you the luxury of protecting human links and relationships and, and all of that, I think, makes a difference, certainly, in what constitutes um, Vilcasa. You don't get to choose your family, they always say. And there will be people listening who are involved with family businesses who think, my God, how do you keep all of that together? How do you keep the, the show on the road? Is there a kind of challenge as well, being a family business in that way? Yeah, I mean, there, there always is. But I, I think having worked in, I would say, normal companies with normal shareholders, and I would say still very much an advantage because whilst in any organisation you can have difference of opinions on small things, often with families that you find that on core values we share the same so whilst there are always little details that people would argue about and we are french so we like arguing mm -hmm. um, when it comes to the fundamental of us wanting to produce exceptional wines preserve our human ecosystem have a long-term vision about the environment or things like that that's really easy because that's ingrained into the core of the family values and that we just translate that into the house and and, and its ethos so I would say on the whole, it remains a, a, a net, net positive, definitely. Yeah, great. Well, uh, I assumed before I did my homework on your um, resume, as they would say in America, that you had sort of, you know, um, trained in the winery and, you know, uh, learned from your father and stayed within the business and so forth. But actually, you went to London, you yeah. uh, worked in a management consultancy, I, I think, or, or, or that kind of EY, I think that, that, yeah. that kind of business. And you went away for quite a while doing that. Um, why did you do that? Uh, because I'm independent and strong-minded. I think it's some of that. Um, I guess you're right, it's a bit atypical as, as, as a way of... of leading a winery however there are some fundamentals i mean i grew up in champagne my father worked there for 20 odd years so it's easily ingrained into your mind and body from a young age of what the champagne ecosystem looks like uh, and feels like and how it works so that's the easy part but it was i had no expectation of rejoining the house i think it was important for me to to learn english which is the only first reason why i moved to the uk uh, as a student and then it was about learning and being with I mean brilliant very intelligent people and and stretching the minds and learning and then when the family asked me to join back then obviously he's bringing back that I would say business experience to the family heritage and the rest of that as I said it's, it's about values and fundamentally you can't learn values and there's no training for that and and I'm very lucky that when we transition from one generation to the next generation, obviously, whilst the family is at the core of everything, there is a very strong team. And that strong team remains in place. And we have very loyal team members that are there to ensure that in addition to the family heritage, we have the best of the best in terms of expertise when it comes to vineyard management, winemaking, all that kind of thing that is essential to making sure you get your bottles in the right places uh, and with the right quality. And it's not just about you, as you say. Um, you have a number of your um, close relatives in quite senior roles yeah. within the company, don't you? Yeah, we have. That. I mean, there's only three family members in reality sort of working day to day for the company. But perhaps more importantly, there is a tasting committee. So that's really the, 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 the key part of ensuring that the Bilka quality one stays at the highest level possible and continues to improve. And there it's 50-50 between the family members and the technical professionals. And other than the corporate thing on how the company is run, I would say this is 
for people that trust to open a bottle of Bilka is the most important because this is what ensures every single base wine is tasted, every single blend is decided by the committee, every aging is decided there, every dosage is decided there. So that's really ensuring that quality is at the highest priority and, and this is how it lives every day. You mentioned the tasting committee there. Um, just explain um, what that is and, and how it works for those who aren't familiar. Yeah, so it's eight members. So you have four family members across three generations, fifth, six, and sevens on our side. I chair it because you need to have somebody responsible for what's being there. And then you have my chef de cave. So he's actually the guy, the head guy making the wines, our head of vineyard, because for me, it's important that vineyard and vinification stay as closely aligned as possible. You have my ex-chef de car because at Bilkar you never leave the heritage. It's the same concept we have for team members and family members. And you have the assistant chef de car. And what this committee does is, if you take the entire process, is we taste every single base, base wine. So that's still wine that we make, which will intimately go into a blend. That's deciding whether it's good enough to go into Bilkar or whether it needs to be sold off or anything like that and what cuvee it's likely to go into then is deciding every single blend. So you have to imagine it's six samples served blind, which we all taste in silence, and then we share our notes and trying to get to a consensus. It takes several sessions to agree on a blend. We also judge the aging when we feel a bottle is ready to be disgorged. Then we spend now, it's a new approach that I put in place four years ago, is we spend as much time deciding a dosage, then we decide a blend, so six samples at a time, completely blind. And then we decide whether cuvee is ready to be shared. So it's a very artisan approach, very time consuming because there's no shortcut there and you can't really delegate your palate to anybody. So you have to be physically there um, tasting wines to ensure, yeah, to ensure we are proud and I am proud of every single label who has a name Bill Salmon. I'm happy to say, yes, we, we made this. But, and it's like a seal of approval. Um, but but it's a seal of approval, not just people would, some other would say that's for the marketing and the fast of it. It's actually something that means I don't really travel between mid-November to late March is because it's most mornings at 11 a.m. and sometimes it's twice a day, 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. So wow. it's yeah, it's, it takes a lot of time. I was going to say it must take a lot of time, but you're talking about for a period of time every day. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, during, during the Van Clare, we have to taste 250 base wines. So... It's for 10 days, twice a day. And on, on these base wine tastings, we don't go through six at a time. We'll go through, I mean, we potentially go through 20. So it, it, it is, yeah. But there is, no, there is no two ways about it. I mean, I think, you know, if you, if you want to create exceptional wines, and it's going to take time and effort like anything in life. And, and we're no different. And whilst technology has its place in some parts of what we do, I think keeping it old school, old fashioned and on tried and tested method like blind tasting, it's worked for 204 years. So I'm not quite sure why we should change it. It's a huge responsibility as well. How did you um, train your palate to be equipped to be able to do that very important job? We drink a lot. Mm. No, I mean, uh, uh, more seriously, I think there is enough technical palate around the table to ensure these technical elements are there. I don't even try and have a run-in with them on what they feel and smell like. But what you need to know is there is no, there is nothing like an ultimate palate. No disrespect to the best critics in the world. That thing doesn't exist. Um, 
there is the fault of wine that you must avoid, but that I think by the time it gets to the tasting table, that's normally taken care of. Uh, however, there is a style that we want to respect. There is a vision of where we want to try and take certain blends. And ultimately, there is a responsibility to ensure we provide, of course, a wine of the highest quality, but a wine that gives that little bit of emotion and pleasure. And there is nothing ultimate there. And that's the reason why a panel is important, because nobody can say, well, it's my taste or that doesn't exist. We all have different tastes. You'll have your favorites, I'll have my favorite for different kinds of wine. And, and even within one kind of wine, you may have 10 favorites. Um, for me, it's ensuring that I can look anybody in the eye and say, that cuvee, I'm proud of it. And yes, it fits with all what we think Bilcar Salmon is all about. And, and it tastes aligned with what we're trying to do. And, and, and be consistent with that and with the teams that have created it and, and make something that is balanced and, and understandable by everybody. Seventh generation, um, you must feel the weight of responsibility. I mean, you seem very relaxed, but um, but but uh, maybe you're like a swan. Um, but 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 you, you you must feel this enormous weight of responsibility running uh, this this family um, dynasty um, and 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 the, the responsibility that goes with um, not just keeping everything afloat, but making it successful, uh, keeping the quality up, all the rest of it. It must be a huge uh, weight. Yeah, it is and it isn't. I mean, it's a weight, but it's also a great opportunity. So um, there are times you feel the weight. So, you know, during hard lockdown, when you have to ensure, you know, we did no furlough, for example, we wanted to keep the team together. So there are times that are stressful and we saw the extreme times during COVID, for example. Uh, but on the whole, I think it's it's really balanced by the pride of the collective effort that it takes to make Bill Carson what it is today. It's, it's anticipation of what we know the wines we make today are better than the ones we made yesterday. And if we don't do that, then that means we're not making progress. And I'm very focused on ensuring that regardless of where we are, we need to continue to do better and better wines. Um, so I think for me, I would say there is more, I see more opportunities than, than, than weight of responsibility like mm, you don't want to work on Monday. Uh, um, this is not a normal job. Uh, there is no two ways about it. It's it's a life commitment. Um, you know, we celebrated. I give you a, a side example. We celebrated the hundredth birthday of my great uncle last week, and he's been working for the house since he was eighteen, and he's a hundred. Wow! So it, it's a little bit our vision of 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 being the custodian of that heritage. Is that is it's. You can look at it as weight, but fundamentally for us, it's a great honor, and and and. And we just need to continue to foster that heritage to, to produce great wines. That's, that's really what we are passionate about and we put all our energy into. Yeah, and we're going to talk about the latest one of those great wines uh, uh, shortly. Uh, you touched on the pandemic there. Um, uh, champagne sales did some kind of, uh, from the outside, quite strange things during that period. It's a, a drink of celebration. So uh, when things go bad, um, champagne sales go down generally. We saw that with the global financial crisis. Um, and we saw that to an extent with the pandemic. And then we saw the most extraordinary rebound, didn't we? We did. I mean, certainly if you take champagne as a whole, 2020 was still a very bad year. I mean, there was no global shipments took a, took a very big hit. 
Bilkas Allemand is, is a little bit unusual um, because we've always had a lot more demand than we had supply. Having said that, we are focused on luxury hotels and, and luxury restaurants and top restaurants, which were closed for most part of the pandemic. However, we are lucky to have one, we're not necessarily associated with just there is a party and any bubbles will do. We have a quite a different positioning where we are in the fine wine, finest wine category. And in this case, it's less about um, the big party with 100 people in your garden. And nobody cares so long as it's got bubbles. Mm -hmm. So that's not us. Uh, and we are very lucky to have people that really trust Billacart and Billacart Salmon and will not be would not want to substitute for any other champagne or any other sparkling wine. And in this case, what happened is, is these same people that trust us in top, top restaurants called their independent uh, wine shops and wine merchants and said, look, I, I want to enjoy Bilka at home. So fundamentally for us, and it's one of our, my great pride and shows, I would say, the standing of the house, because we were one of the very rare producers, except very small growers, who sold the same number of bottles in 2020 than in 2019. But that doesn't really happen. And that's the strength of of our ecosystem and, and, and I guess proves the point that we're lucky to have people that really enjoy what we do and, and we want to make sure they continue enjoying us. And we, the only way to do that is continue to surprise them in a good way for the quality we produce. And you have a kind of... Um a problem at the moment, which um, for a lot of companies um, wouldn't be a problem, but for a champagne house can be a challenge, and that is um, demand. It's been through the roof, hasn't it? Yes, it's been very strong. I mean, since 20, we, we were an early indicator because for most parts, I think champ 21 was, was good, but already 2020, we don't have bad years. But here, we, we would have moved from perhaps a time where we had 50% more demand than supply, and maybe now it's 300%. So it's getting uncomfortable to that uh, to that level. However, we manage it well. Uh, one key thing that we are custodian of, as I said at, at the start, is the heritage. And I certainly don't want to shorten my aging just because there is too much demand. Uh, and if we are out of stock, we are out of stock. It's not that I want to be out of stock, but I will not make no compromises for the quality. We're one of the rare producers that, that can make that statement and back it up with you know, vintages are we releasing that have spent proper time in the cellar. Um, so it's a luxury problem, you're right. Fundamentally, however, it's not because there is demand that we should change what we do and what we do very well. And I strongly believe that the reason why Bilka has got so much demand is because the people that follow us know that we don't cheat with quality. And the day that we start doing that, and the most obvious way to do that as a producer is to shorten the aging in your bottles. That's fundamentally the easy thing to do is is something that we just don't want to compromise with and we have non-vintages that spend more than five years in the cellar yes it's double trouble four times what you tend to get on average and we have vintages that spend more than 10 years uh, in the cellar which is typically back vintages territory for other producers however that's part of what we do that's what we stand for and there will be no compromises on that yeah, it's interesting you say that because uh, SE Avalon MW for her champagne reports last autumn for Club Analogique um, said that she could absolutely detect that there were um, reductions in the aging process that were that were that she could uh, she could smell she could taste and uh, she, you know, highlighted that. That's something that is absolutely off limits for you then. Yeah, because you need four, there are four key elements to make an exceptional wine if you're a champagne producer. You need to have 
great terroir and viticulture. Okay, I would say most winemakers will tell you that. I think you need, and it's often forgotten in the current day and age, it's great people. The human ecosystem and the know-how is absolutely key. Wine is, is in, intrinsically linked, this human working with nature. That's that symbiosis is really important. Then you need to have, it's a dirty word, but tools and equipment, you know, the best team with the best terroir working with rotten cask is, is not going to produce an exceptional wine. So there is a very practical element. And the fourth factor, particularly important for Champagne, is time. You cannot cheat with time. You know, I have this say with the team is there's only one person that can cheat with time. It's God and he doesn't live in Champagne, right? So hence we have that responsibility of making sure our wine spends sufficient time on lease for the autolysis to provide that uniqueness and complexity. Certainly, depending on the cuvées, that, that sort of timing can age more or less. So our Brut Rosé needs a freshness and the little red fruits and will need less time, say, than our Blanc de Blanc non-vintage will spend more than five years because we feel the Grand Cru needs that time. But regardless of what you do, you cannot sugarcoat and you cannot substitute time. Marketing departments may pretend that you can. The accountant would love you to pretend that doesn't exist. But fundamentally, if you are serious about that, focus on wine and on quality i don't believe you can and we don't mm. you've got to be a very special kind of accountant to work in the wine business anyway but particularly at a top champagne house haven't you yeah it's best to forget everything that they've taught you at school on stock management <laughs> yeah i mean on, on um demand um as you say there is very high demand there's only so much you can produce um, so presumably, um, a quite a key part of your job is kind of around managing um, supply and managing expectation and kind of telling people no in a nice way. Yeah, that they have a great sales team. We, have, we can do that. But uh, as to the planning, you're right. I mean, we do, we have various stock management ways, whether it's allocation, whether it's reducing you know typical order for example a client in france can't order more than 84 bottles per 30 days with this particular mix for example as a way of spreading the joy but but if you take right at the beginning how it works for us is we sit down normally last quarter of uh of the year before the new year starts so back end of 22 for 23 for example with the seller master uh, we've reviewed all the wines with the tasting committee and we look at it and we say, okay, what do we think we can legitimately put uh, on the market in 23 for each format, for each cuvee, whilst continuing to follow our quality objectives? So quality first, and then we look at, okay, what can come out of the seller that would still be aligned with what we're trying to do? And that's how then at the, be then at the beginning of the year, I have the tough job of saying, okay, well, that region get that much, that region get that much and then they have to spread the joy. But fundamentally is the seller comes first. So yes, sometimes there is more or less of that cuvee. But as I said, and I think you've heard me say that enough, is quality of the wine is paramount. That's what we're known for. And that's the rest of it gets adapted around it. Well, let's talk about a couple of those things you're known for before we come to the latest release. So uh, we tasted last night uh, the uh, Blanc de Blanc uh, Grand Cru. Yep. Um, and it's uh, sensational. Um, uh, Matthew Jukes is here on, on this trip um, and a renowned palate. He said this is one of his top three kind of desert island wines. It's, it's that good. Um, tell us about what makes that, that particular product so special in your mind. Yeah, the Blanc de Blanc Grand Cru is indeed fantastic. It's really a core part of our 
one of our four savoir-faire. What makes it different? Uh, I mean, you can get Blanc de Blanc from anywhere, white grapes in Champagne. At Bilcar, obviously, we have a, a different way of going about it. Our Blanc de Blanc is only from Côte de Blanc. This is like the, the Bond Street of Chardonnay, mm -hmm. uh, so the very top uh, crew get there. So it's only Côte de Blanc and only Grand Cru. So that's really a key component. It's a very strong statement about the importance of that terroir being the best of the best of what you can get in Chardonnay. And then the second differentiator is again that not cheating with time. So is this great terroir with our own vinification technique called fermented etc. for Birka and five years minimum on lease. Very rare you get on the market um, other than a handful of top top growers Blanc de Blanc that are Côte de Blanc only, Côte de Blanc only with long aging. Often the long aging is not very respected. So we've combined the two, not just not just to tell you with pride that we have five years only is ultimately why does that five years matter? It matters because having done a lot of trials and tasting, it takes these five years for the great terroir to express themselves. And if you release them earlier, yes, they would be great terroir on the label, but you won't have them on your taste buds and that's what matters to us. Okay, well, it tastes fantastic. So it's worth all that effort. Um, and then the rosé is something that, uh, the brute rosé, that, that, that uh, sends people into a sort of special place. I, I've loved it for a long time. Um, I don't get nearly enough of it, but um, uh, tell us about the way you make rosé and again, what makes that kind of special and different? Yeah, rosé is perhaps and is perhaps the hardest blend to make because you have to make your. We make our own red wine uh, from old vines of Pinot Noir only from Montagne de Reims. So that within of itself, it's a skill, and you make a red wine with the intention of making a champagne rosé. So it's not exactly the same approach without getting too technical. And then we we do a blend of white wine, which is typically uh, Chardonnay led for the freshness. And then it's through blending several years, because these are non-vintages, uh, several years, different terroir, that we achieve that unique blend and, and really what we want. All Bilcar cuvées need to have that DNA of finesse, elegance and balance. That's part of the core values of what we stand for. And really the Brut Rosé is finding the little red fruit on the front palate and the citrus in the back palate. And, and that's really through that blind tasting and through iterations of the tasting committee that we managed to harness that but it often historically some of the roses on the market is just people saying we just add red wine to a champagne blend well that's in my mind a recipe for disaster we've been making roses since at least 1840 so way 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 before it was fashionable we think we've harnessed what we feel is really the expression of that rosé and and that's perhaps why we we're particularly well known for it and that production process, I think, uh, puts you in the minority of rosé champagnes, doesn't it? Um, as in the way you go about it? Or would you say it's, um, uh, it's, it's reasonably yeah, easy? Yeah, you have two ways. You're right. I mean, you have the blend rosé, which is adding red wine to your white, white blend. And then you have the more maceration rosé when you let the skin contact the pulp. I, I, we don't have exact statistics about who does what. Um, but, but certainly our way, if you ask me 200 years ago, we did the maceration rosés. But since the 1960s, we've really owned in things thanks to my great uncle on the blend rosé. And, and I think people that know the Brut Rosé of Bilcar Salmon at the moment would know it through its blended vision. Yeah. And that brings us neatly to uh, the product that we're here to celebrate um, today. Now, back to a little bit of history, because um, the names uh, Bilcar and Salmon, that is a coming together of, of, of 
of two people with those names. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is the marriage of Nicolas Francois Bilecar, so my great, 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 great grandfather, uh, marries Elizabeth Salmon, my great, great, great grandmother. And these two families, I guess, merge their, their vineyard in the beginning of the 19th century in 1818. And that's how the Champagne House is created. So that's very much a family story that, like we talked about at the beginning. Uh, and the third person for completeness was Elizabeth Salmon's brother, who is, we would call him a chef de carte today, but the first unologist of, of, of the house, Louis Salmon. And, and now the three of four of our prestige cuvées have the name of these founding members as again, a, a respectful gesture of the family heritage. And the uh, Cuvée Nicolas Francois 2008 is what we are about to taste today. And I shall report back at the end of this podcast on, on the taste. But um, just give, us, um, give me a, a teaser now as to what to expect. So the teaser, well, this is the very best of our traditional blend savoir-faire. So this is about blending different terroir. In this particular case, it's, it's Pinot Noir from Premier Grand Cru of Montagne de Reims paired with for 60% and 40% of Grand Cru of Côte de Blanc. So this is the very best of what we do in traditional blend, aging for a very long time with a proportion of wine vinified in oak barrels. So if you like your classic expression of champagne, then this is the one for you where we've respected the time, being very, very, very patient because whilst 2008 is a fantastic year in Champagne, it's one that really needed patience to ensure that that minerality that the year gives is balanced by enough richness, which will give it the longevity for the 10, 20, or 30 years. That's really what we've ensured with that 2008, releasing it after 150 months on lease in the cellar and, and giving it that fantastic life expectancy. Just explain why that aging then is so important. What's it doing to the, 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 the cuvee? It gives the additional complexity that makes great champagnes. Uh, and in the case of 2008, it brings depth and concentration to what would otherwise be very lean and fresh year. And the vintage itself, 2008, just tell us a little bit about that year. It's a very celebrated one. It's a very celebrated one. I mean, on paper, if you look at the, the, um, the, the weather and all that kind of thing, there's not much to read in the weather forecast on, on, the, on the weather, sorry, on the spring and summer. However, it benefited from a very sunny September and September made the must and made the harvest and saved the harvest. I think what people like the most about it is because it's very fresh and very pure. It's one of these years that very easily you can, assuming you've done your work properly as a producer, give it a very, very, very long longevity. So I think that's what I guess makes it stand out. 2002, 2008 is not only you will enjoy it today, but in 10, 20 and 30 years time, it's one of the ones that will probably go the furthest. And uh, just wrapping up, um, we're going to kind of, I think, uh, shortly kind of taste your philosophy but if you had to describe um, your philosophy uh, running uh, Bill Cartesamon um, how would you describe that? We have the family so I'll go back to the family ethos which, which sounds like a marketing slogan but believe me it's too old for that is give priority to quality and thrive for excellence and what that means in practice is you put quality on the center of everything you do the Thrive for Excellence is challenging yourself and, and human ecosystem to do better. Small things, what I like to say to the team is Bill Carsalmon is the small things done right every day 
particularly when nobody's watching. And, and that's really what's, what helps us do what we do best and, and thrive towards making even more exceptional wines. Well, I can't wait to, uh, wait to taste it. And I know you've got people itching to kind of speak to you. Um, so uh, Mathieu, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to us on The Drinking Hour. A big thank you to you. And thank you uh, for all of your listeners that uh, may try our cuvee uh, in the future. Thank you. Mathieu Roland Bilcar talking to me at uh, Mirazur, the fantastic three-star restaurant owned by chef proprietor Mauro Colagreco, an Argentinian. And uh, after I'd spoken to Mathieu, uh, we went on to taste the new 2008 Nicolas Francois, uh, followed by uh, what we call in the business a vertical tasting. So going back to previous examples of the same cuvee, uh, we went to the 2002, the 1998 and finally, the 1986. And uh, later on at lunch, we actually tasted the original uh, Nicolas Francois from 1964. A blend of the uh, great crews from uh, the classified vineyards of Montagny de Reims, uh, famed for its Pinot Noir, and the Cote de Blanc, uh, celebrated for its Chardonnay. Uh, the new Nicolas Francois 2008 has a, a strong, very distinctive personality. A vintage 2008 in Champagne enjoyed a sunny climate. Uh, it was a very generous harvest, I think. One of the greats uh, in terms of those who uh, rate uh, vintage to vintage. This cuvee is, uh, as it generally is, 60-40 Pinot Noir to Chardonnay. Uh, 17% of the cuvee is aged in barrel. Um, there's uh, quite low dosage. Very much dosage is coming down uh, right across Champagne now. Uh, this is 2.9 grams per litre. It is magnificent, elegant, intense, blue-fruited, kind of lots of fleshy blueberry there, perhaps a bit of blackcurrant as well. A wonderful yeasty character, frangipani, hints of honeycomb. Uh, there's a, a, a really electrifying tension, despite this being you know, already 15 years old, uh, but also bags of charm. It's approachable, but also destined for a a very long life. And as if to prove the point, the 2002 is now in a wonderful place, having been firmer and arguably more austere until relatively recently. It offers incredible finesse and complexity, notes of ginger, white truffle, uh, toasted hazelnuts, wild honey. I could go on. Again, 60-40 Pinot Noir to Chardonnay, a dosage slightly higher at four grams. Uh, four grams per litre. Then there was the 1998 Nicolas Francois, still in really great shape. Wafts of gunflint, a really lovely smoky granite note, grapefruit, almonds and sweet spice. Really delicious. A little more Chardonnay, 44% to 56% Pinot Noir. And the dosage, higher again, uh, almost six grams back in 1998. And finally, the 1986, still holding together very well, plush, lime notes, some evolution, obviously, but very graceful. Uh, there's tobacco leaf, toasted macadamia, really wonderful kind of nutty note there, honey. Uh, the dosage back in 1986 was 12.6 grams per litre. So you can see how it's come down in 2008 to just 2.9 grams. and. A final postscript with our 
exceptional tasting menu lunch. We enjoyed a vin surprise, a Nicolas Francois from 1964. First ever cuvee of this very special wine, still boasting a few delicate bubbles, a, a lovely richness there, a savoury character, just a, a joy. Uh, you can see why uh, Mathieu Roland Bilcar talks so much about the importance of patience. If you'd like to know more about the meal, you can check out my Instagram profile page uh, where I've uh, saved the uh, story with some of the photos I took. It's envy-inducing, I'm afraid, but it was amazing, a very memorable meal. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. So let's round off as ever, not with pudding, but with a, a putty four or a putty sack this time of medal winners uh, from the IWSC Hall of Fame. Uh, if all that talk of champagne uh, made you thirsty for it, then uh, here are some champagne medal winners from the IWSC in 2022. Judging was overseen uh, for the first time by S.E. Avalin, M.W., the renowned champagne expert and if you're a regular listener a guest a couple of times here on the drinking hour uh, including last week talking about her grower champagne report for club analogique uh, first of all a gold medal winner from uh, one of the great names piper heidsek trophy winner last year best in show the trophy was actually for the 2014 vintage in magnum but we've mentioned that before uh, so let's mention the Piper Heidsek Essential, extra brute non-vintage, also a gold medal winner, 95 points. The judges saying elegantly composed with concentrated layered notes of red apple, raspberry, cherry, baked apples, and further complexity of mushroom, forest floor, toast, and bready notes. The fine creamy mousse is complemented by the fresh citrus-driven acidity and punctuated by a lingering finish. Next. Another gold medal winner, this time a rosé champagne, a Jacquard Mosaic Rosé Brut non-vintage, majority Pinot Noir at 44%, lashings of Chardonnay at 33%, the remainder Meunier. Uh, the judges said charming, delicate aromas of raspberry, orange peel, strawberry, red currant and lifted violet with subtle autolytic notes of brioche. The elegant mineral structure is supported by fresh, zesty acidity, a soft mousse and a long, lingering finish. Next, a silver medal winner from a name that may be familiar to you if you travel um, up front on BA, Castelnau. Their non-vintage is uh, often served in uh, business class. It's actually a very successful cooperative producer. Their Castelnau Brute 2006 won 91 points. The judges said a savoury nose of forest floor, truffle and toasted brioche, creme caramel complexity and a rich and rounded yellow fruit palate. Complex and well-balanced acidity with lingering flavours. Another successful co-op is Union Champagne, who make Tesco finest Brute Premier Cru Champagne. Um, this is a great champagne, one of my favourites for uh, everyday drinking, if that doesn't sound too lush. A silver medal winner. Uh, here's the judge's verdict. Refined white peach and gently toasted brioche aromas with a complex palette of rounded citrus fruit and refreshing acidity with lingering lemon peel length. And just to underline how important those cooperative producers are in the Champagne region, uh, here's a third. 
I think it's the biggest by some margin. It's a cooperative of co-ops, I think. Nicola Fiat, Palm Door, Brute 2008, from that uh, magical 08 vintage that we were discussing uh, just now. This was a silver medal winner with 92 points. Uh, the judges said, gentle toast with ripe citrus and red cherry, a creamy orange blossom, refined palate with soft brioche texture, fresh acidity and creamy mousse atop the refined and elegant finish. Time for my own, uh, hopefully, elegant finish. Uh, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Mathieu Roland Bilcar for sparing some precious time ahead of the launch of that uh, special cuvee, the uh, Nicolas Francois 2008. And thank you to you uh, for listening too. Do join us next time. You can find my column at Club en Logique com, including my monthly tasting recommendations. And you can follow us on social media, either at uh, Club Enologique, uh, Food FM Radio, or you can follow my own profile, Mr. Venusaurus. Uh, that's uh, where you'll find those pictures of that amazing meal if you want to do that. Thanks for listening. And until next time, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.